We have playoff baseball in the American Association and the Frontier League, plus much more. So you'll want to stay tuned for this episode of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. Alright, we're back again, episode number 132 of the Indie Ball Report Podcast, and for the first time in about, probably about 20 episodes or so, we do actually have a solo episode, I know, not the best time of year to have to throw one of these on, especially because they tend to be shorter and there's a lot of actual on-the-field, more uh, discussion-based topics for this week on hand, so it's a bit unfortunate, but we'll try to figure something out here to try and make up for that but uh unfortunately it's just me this week so that's the way life is so i guess we just kind of roll with this however we're going to roll with this and i guess we'll start with uh with some frontier league news because we got uh some beef in the frontier league on top of postseason action and we obviously have a championship heavyweight matchup that starts tonight friday night in the american association for their championship as well so right into it now with the frontier league first and we'll save the american association news for the end here and i guess we'll kind of start with what i thought was going to wind up being the headline of the week uh because it kind of came out more on the saturday uh sunday kind of piece in the beginning to kind of end of last week so 11 12 is when this really kind of hit the fan if you would where we know Tri-City has been beefing with uh, Sussex County for pretty much the whole year. Pretty much Tri-City's whole tenure, Frontier League, can be, can be explained by simply saying, they and Sussex County don't get along. We'll take the opportunity to screw each other over whenever humanly possible. And if you remember, I believe it was either last week or the week prior, I said there is a scenario that exists where Tri-City could have their playoff hopes completely reliant on the outcome of the Quebec and uh, minor series at the very end of the year, the last four-game stretch, the uh, doubleheader on Friday, and then the Saturday and Sunday games to wrap up the year. And I said, I don't think that'll be the case here, but it would be funny as hell if it did, because we all know that those two teams don't exactly get along, and I can only imagine what the case would be if... Sussex held the Valley Cats playoff fate in the palm of their hands and I believe at one point I even threw out it would be kind of funny if Bobby Jones just decided to say hey we're gonna tank this one so that way we can stop them from getting into the postseason wouldn't that be funny and I said hey he probably won't do that because that wouldn't be very professional of him well it kind of looks like he did that because as most of you are probably aware at this point, if you follow the Frontier League, you would know that what happened was Quebec wound up taking, I believe it was three or four or four or four, from the Sussex County Myers in that final series, which is exactly what they needed to do. They wound up winning the early game on Sunday, which kind of negated anything the Valley Cats could do as far as forcing a tie scenario in that Atlantic division, which eliminated the Valley Cats from playoff contention. Granted, the quasi-traveling Equipe Quebec, a playoff berth, as we will talk about in a bit, they're currently tied and looking very good, to be honest, in their playoff series against Washington. But that's not really what we're here to talk about at the moment. We're here to talk about 
the whole scenario surrounding this. We obviously know Bobby's been beefing with the Valley Cats for a rather long time. It starts with the Stein stealing allegations, and then it turns into him almost fighting Pete and Cofilia, which obviously netted each of them a two-game suspension, which was supposedly non-consecutive games, which is very odd, but hey, it is what it is. Then it turned into the Max Herman uh, foreign substance suspension for six games, and the Crest Quitzer suspension that wound up being the rest of the year, although granted that was only about four or five games, but in any case, they have history. When it became clear on Saturday night that, okay, tomorrow will determine this, we all started wondering, what will Sussex do? And what Sussex wound up doing was they wound up running an outfielder, Ascara, out to the mound who had less than an inning of professional baseball pitched in his career. He started pitching as a lefty, then wound up going and pitching as a righty, and then back as a lefty at one point in the game. He pitched about four innings, I believe. And then Billy Lane Jr. came in relief, and around the midway mark of the game, around the fifth, sixth inning, um, we started seeing more starters get pulled out. Chuck Taylor, Kaleo Johnson, the two most notable of them, but there was a couple others that were also uh, given the hook around the midway mark of the game. And obviously, as you can imagine, at one point it was 8-6 Quebec, so it was a fairly close game. The Miners actually led uh, at one point in the first inning. I believe it was 3 nothing, and then that quickly vanished uh, not long after. But they wound up losing the game is really the main point here, which gave Quebec the win and the division and the playoff spot, which stopped Tri-City, who would play about 30 to 15 minutes or so after that minor game concluded. Uh, it left them kind of just standing in the dark. Uh, they they had nothing to play for. The game was now worthless, and that result really doesn't matter. But as you could imagine, the Valley Cats from top to bottom were rather annoyed at this because if you're starting an outfielder as a starting pitcher, that probably means you weren't trying to win the game. And it would certainly appear like that. And supposedly, from what I hear, it's been up for about... 72 hours after that game, they being the Valley Cats, were going to the league brass and saying they need to be fined for this, they need to be suspended for this, there needs to be action taken against the Myers for doing this, it's completely unsporting, it's unfair, and they were saying all these things here, and on one hand, I do empathize with them a lot, I mean, like, it's, it's one of those situations where it's quite clear that they weren't actually trying to win the game i mean like anyone with eyes can see it but it's one of those things it's very hard to prove and unless you can prove it it's really tough to sell a suspension or a fine against the team player or manager because bobby jones is going to go out there and say i was rewarding bench guys that have been with us for the full year for a large part of the year with playing time and the end of a meaningless game and to that extent i wasn't going to risk throwing pitchers arms out in the last game of the year that's completely meaningless to us when they have winter ball opportunities or could have winter ball opportunities. That just wouldn't be right to do that. So Trevin Ascara stepped up to the plate. He said, I'll pitch. And so we let him pitch. We figured, why not? If he wants to do it, we'll reward him with the, the playing time. Again, it's a meaningless game for us. So that's going to be the defense. It's going to work out fine. There's nothing that can really be done on that matter. And like I said, I empathize with Tri-City because it sucks. It really does suck to see someone clearly run a half-assed lineup out there. I mean, no one's going to argue that. I mean, the party line may wind up being, no, we were trying to win the game, but we all know they were not trying to win that game one bit. You feel for him for that because it's 
it's not really sporting. The Valley Cats have a legitimate beef, but there's nothing that can really be done about it. And I will say it does crank up that rivalry up an extra notch or two. And I'm really looking forward to that first Valley Cat series against the Miners next year because that's going to be must-watch television uh, to the nth degree, really. And, you know, it's it just really sucks that it comes down to that position. But at the same time, the Valley Cats put themselves in this position. I mean, we recognize a team that went, what, about 46-30 and 30 to finish the year, but they're also a team that went four and sixteen to start the year. If you're losing games at a four to one clip, I have a hard time feeling bad for you when you miss the postseason by a game. When if you would have just been ever so slightly better to begin the year and not played pretty badly, I mean, really just completely terribly, if we're being brutally honest, to the first fifth of the year, then you wouldn't be in this boat right now. It's not like a situation where like Florence or Southern Illinois or Evansville in that division where it was quite clearly the case that there's three really solid teams here and there's one playoff spot. If it's something like that and a team screws you over like that, then yeah, you have every right to complain. I mean, hell, you have Evansville that set a franchise record for wins. I want to say it was 57 or so. And they missed the postseason because Florence is just ever so slightly better than them this year. And that's obviously a very, very, very tough pill to swallow if you are out of the otters. But at the end of the day, you just wind up losing out to a better team, I suppose is the way to put it. As opposed to being Tri-City that you lose out to, yes, a Quebec team that played better than you. Quebec finishes with 52 wins. The Valley Cats finish with 50 wins. And Rockland finishes at pretty much what I said they'd be at, at about 450 winning percentage, 43 and 52 for what that matters. So it would have made a bit of a difference there because it would have been a game and a half. And then if you assume the Valley Cats know they're playing for something, they play a little bit better than Washington, uh, or they play a little bit better against Washington, it's 51 and 45 for both of them at that point. And I believe Tri-City had the tiebreaker, although when we did the quick maths on it, it seemed like Quebec had the tiebreaker, so I'm not really sure what's the case there. But either way, the overall point remains neither team was exactly breaking down the door although they would have been at worst tied for the the lowest playoff seed winning wise Schomburg has that but everyone's about the same this year so it it's just it's one of those situations where I understand why Tri-City is very annoyed I they have every right to be but it's not like this was an incredibly difficult division to win. 43 wins would have gotten you there. Or 53 wins would have gotten you there. And they weren't able to get to that number. They played poorly to start the year, and then they played well. And at the end of the day, if you start the season 4-16, and 16, then it puts you in a very tough position to complain about not making the postseason, regardless of the circumstances. And again, that said... It's clear what the objective was with the line that Bobby ran out there. It was very clear what that objective was. And I'm not going to say he's wrong to do that because, I mean, again, they have some serious beef there going back the whole season. And each side was a real, or each side was a, uh, a thorn in the other side. So uh, I get why that was going to be done that way. I understand. It's also not exactly the most sporting thing here. And even if what I said as a cover was a legitimate excuse, which, I mean, that's a tough sell to tell me that playing time for bench guys 
and running a position player out as a starter to save someone's arm that probably wasn't going to get injured anyway, that's a long stretch of an, of an excuse. Uh, I mean, like, that's, that's a real rough road to sell. Yeah, the only way I see this, you know, kind of boiling over is next year on the field. And that's really, I think, the way it plays it should be handled. I don't think the league's going to be able to do anything about this. Outside of maybe a stern talking to about Bobby to not do that crap in the future. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where I land on it. He shouldn't have done it the way it is, but you have very, very little rights to complain when it's not like you were a top five team in the league anyway. You're, I'm going to leave it at that. We have actual playoff baseball to discuss. It's a solo show, so I like to get these done fairly quickly. So let's keep going and hopefully get to the point where we could wrap this up in 20 minutes or less. We'll stick with the Frontier League, and we'll talk about Frontier League postseason play. Obviously, we know that Quebec made it into the postseason as per that whole past segment here, and they were playing the Washington Wild Things, which had clinched the division a couple days earlier uh, because of some Sussex County losses. Uh, also, I don't want to overshadow this. Adi Sirioko had his number retired by the Miners, too. I feel like that's worthy of a mention. Nice ceremony, middle of the game. Uh, very well done. We talked about it on our Twitter page on uh, Saturday. That's when it got done. So, good for Adi. Happy for him. That said, we have playoff baseball to talk about. Uh, so, let's talk about that Quebec and Washington series first. Then we'll get to the Florence and Schomburg series. Florence wound up eking that one out, and that's a tough go for that whole West Division there. We'll talk more about those teams in a second here. As far as Quebec and Washington go, that's been a really fun series so far. Only two games played as of the time of the recording, although they're about to get going on that other uh, game three now in Quebec City. Game four will be in uh, Three Rivers, and then game number five will be back in Quebec City if necessary. But both games have been very, very good so far. Washington winds up dropping the first one 9 nothing. Um that just was a rough go for them. It never really seemed like they were in it. Uh, Rob Whalen just didn't have it on uh, on game one. Four innings, five earned runs, a total of ten base runners. Uh, just not not good. Not good out of him. Bullpen did okay. I mean, nothing out of the blue there. But Jared Mortensen just came and he balled out. Four base runners in total, two hits, two walks, eight strikeouts across seven innings. Ishil and Horvath both come in. They allow a combined one base runner between the two of them in the final two innings of play. They came to play. They balled out. They got the job done. Batting-wise, Parra deserves some mention. Two for five for him. Also two for four day for Lacroix. And uh, two runs scored for Gift and Gope, too. So the former major leaguer coming up big there. And all in all, everyone did really, really solid. Anyone that had multiple at-bats in the game wound up with at least one hit for Quebec. So, I mean, that's what you like to see if you're Quebec. If you're Washington, you chalk it up to one game and you move along. And they certainly did in game two of that series where they were trailing going into the eighth inning. They were down by two. It was three to one. Uh, The score after an early lead from Quebec, first inning run, and then fourth inning they traded runs seventh inning they go ahead so it was always a close and competitive game this one they the wild thing certainly learned they batten down the hatches uh pitcher of the year hennen comes up he only allows two earned three total runs one walk three six hits six strikeouts through six and a third so he did his job he definitely did what he needed to do uh paven 
did his job on the flip side too as well for Quebec City where one earned run and one run at all uh five base runners three and two the split on that for two strikeouts through six innings he does his job uh, Frankie Montescello he comes in throws a scoreless inning hitless inning in relief and then it comes to the eighth inning here where I believe it was Grant Heyman hits the two-run shot ties up the game for the wild things Andrew Case gets tagged for that one and then Case manages to finally get out of the inning gets tied going to the ninth go to the bottom of the ninth and as things tend to happen in indie ball in the under three-hour playoff game was a start time having to be shifted from late at night to the afternoon due to rain comes up walk-off hit for Nick Ward and Andrew Case gets tagged for that run as well although Shillhead came in uh, he doesn't record the out he just gives up the hit but at that point he put himself in a position that wasn't exactly great to begin with uh, pitching staff wise that is the Wild Swings managed to tie it up so we know Miguel C and Fuegues will go for game three in the Quebec corner as far as the Washington corner that much is still to be determined uh, we don't know who will uh, who will be going for them as of right now. Um, I'm sure they will have announced it. Actually, you will have seen the game being played uh, by the time that you're listening to this. So we'll see how all that winds up turning out for uh, the wild things here. But all in all, this series has been fairly close and competitive, game one aside. But I, I'm interested to see if the Wild Things can fight back. I saw Kubiak and Hennen as two rather large names that got added to the inactive list. I'm not sure if that's a matter of they're not allowed into Canada due to vaccination status, or if that's just a matter of they throw them too many innings in such a short period of time. They're not going to be able to pitch in any of the next three games, so we'll just put them on the inactive list. I don't think that's the case. Hennen would almost certainly be able to go for game four, Game 5 at the latest, should he be needed. So I would think that he would be able to go. Same thing with Kubiak. I think he's only thrown the one inning in this series so far. So I don't really think that it's because of that. I'm pretty sure it's a vaccination status type thing. So wait and see on that. But all in all, I feel like Quebec has the momentum. Just on the virtue of 9-run game, 9 nothing shutout really. They had a lead. It was close and hard fought. This series is fairly close and hard fought. I know me and Will have been talking for for months now saying that it's really just um, a courtesy round for the Atlantic League, that they're going to be the team that's going to be on the outskirts after round one, that whoever wins the Atlantic Division is going to be the, or the Atlantic Division is going to be tossed aside. Whoever wins the Northeast Division is really going to be the team that's competing for a championship here. And obviously, given the recent play the past few weeks that's not really the case anymore Washington does seem like a beatable team this is a Quebec team that's had a lot of fight a lot of heart all year all in all you want to compare the two teams you can do that it doesn't really matter that much when these teams are so closely knit together we'll talk about the American Association in 10-15 minutes from now but in that championship matchup those two teams there's a chasm between them here, all four teams are roughly speaking the same in my mind. I mean, Florence would be kind of like the odds-on favorite, just given the virtue of what they had to go through to get here and the kind of team they have. But it's far from a guarantee, I will say that much. If I had to throw something out here, I would say I like Quebec a bit better. I think they have a more robust pitching staff. Paven would be able to go in a game five if necessary. 
We know Mortensen will likely get the hill for game number four. Uh, that would be tomorrow, meaning Saturday. So today, while you're listening to this, so we'll see what happens with that. I would, I'm willing to say this is probably going to go five games. This seems like a fairly evenly matched series between two teams. Both of them can hit. Both of them can pitch. They both are, like I said, pretty equal. They both have that one or two dynamic playmaker on either side of the ball that can really make a difference. So both sides of this coin on the Can-Am uh, division have two real just strong battler of uh, teams here because Washington clearly had a rough road to go through having to play Sussex a bunch of times, Tri-City a bunch of times. Uh, obviously, the Atlantic division teams have been a thorn in the side of many teams this year. So we'll see how that winds up working out. And so hopefully uh, we'll get a good championship matchup that will run into next Friday. So we'll be able to talk about this at length. Uh, Flip side of the coin, the Midwest Conference, they're having their divisional championship between the Florence Yalls and the Schaumburg Boomers. The Boomers clinched their division uh, earliest of everyone. That was really no surprise to anybody. Schaumburg on the flip side, though, winds up finishing a half game ahead of the Evansville Otters. The Otters lose a game they really can't afford to lose. The Alls win those games. That's why they're here. It was a hard-fought case to the very end there, and they just wind up in that boat. Now we look at the Alls for Game 1 and Game 2. Game 1, similar to Washington, they, they wind up losing fairly large, 5-1. to one. Schomburg struck early, a two-run first inning. Then they've tacked another one in the fourth, another two in the sixth. Florence gets one back in the seventh, but that really be all uh, for the Yalls in this game. Arjona just dominated seven innings, a six-hit, one-run ball, eight strikeouts for him. Uh, Schneider comes in for the last two innings of mop-up work, does not allow a base runner in those two innings. Flip side, Jared Cheek, five innings of three-run ball, four hits, two walks, seven strikeouts. Not a bad performance by any means, but just need a little bit better there when the offense doesn't show up. McDonald comes in and gives up two unearned runs on three hits. Hawking, two hits, no runs. Then uh, Arvello finishes it off with a one-hit uh, ninth inning there, I believe, or a one-hit eighth inning as Schomburg looks to be the home squad on this one. Uh, but... All in all, a solid performance from the Boomers. They get some production out of Braxton Davidson. A three for three day is always what you like to see. Quincy Nightport, the MVP of the Frontier League, a two for three day from him. Angelo Grums, two for four. A lot of guys just stepping up and getting hits when needed. On the flip side, you just didn't get that out of the Yalas lineup. Uh, DeNicola and Rios, they both contribute two hits in their four bats. Uh, but outside that, no one else really stepped up. Only two other guys had hits for the team, and that would be Persuela and Pintor. Uh, but nothing out of Crapot, nothing out of Crapport, nothing out of Cedillo, nothing out of Brower, nothing out of Connor Crane, nothing out of Axel Johnson. Just not what you need. This, but just not what you can afford to have in a uh, in a playoff series. And it also doesn't help when everyone, with the exception of Connor Crane, strikes out in a game. That's never a good sign. Uh, for your odds of winning a game. On the flip side, though, they come back in Game 2 and another real battler of performance from a team down in the series. Kind of a trend here. Florence struck early. They got two runs in the top of the second. Schomburg answers back with one in the bottom half of that inning. And then the fifth inning, Schomburg takes the lead. Two runs there on the board in the fifth. And they take a 3-2 lead with that. 
in the seventh, Florence comes up with the two running of their own, and then they just put it on lockdown to finish the game with three scoreless innings there. Uh, Bramblick got the start for Schaumburg. Daryl Thompson gets tagged with the loss. Each of them allowed two earned runs. Only difference is Bramblett. He pitched five and a third, and Thompson only pitched one and a third. A couple other relievers come in, but they did nothing in the sense that they didn't allow any runs, so they did their jobs. Uh, Johnny Tripp, he went ahead, five innings of six-hit ball, one earned run. Solid work out of him. Wagner, Craigie, and Dotry all go ahead and lock it down in their Four innings of work, no runs come across, only one hit comes across, only one walk comes across, so only two base runners come across, and that whole span there. So they really just shut down that boomer offense there. And today you saw a Florence team probably be their last road game, as I imagine the next three are all in Kentucky. Uh, again, Brazuela doesn't really step up, he doesn't really do much, but everybody else really did, as only Cedillo... And Dean Nicola do not get hits in this one. Everybody else has one hit in it. Pintor, um, Craport, uh, Johnson, Rio, Brower, Crane, all of them step up big. They all get, they also score some runs. The strikeouts are still there, nine in total, but they're able to put runs to that. On the flip side, just not enough out of the Boomer offense. Uh, Dawson comes up with a hit. But that's about all. Nyport with two. And then you just see a bunch of other guys just kind of disappear. Guys that you're kind of banking on to do some work. McGarry, Grubbs, and uh, Milzano are pretty much the three that I point to there. Uh, obviously, the Boomers are going to need a bit more offense. We talked about this during the year, that their offense was what was concerning about them. Uh, they need to produce more on that front. Pitching-wise, they're a solid team. They're a respectable team. They can get the job done. But with a team like the Yalls, which, historically speaking, have been a good hitting team uh, this past year and just a fine pitching team, they're going to, they mean the Boomers, are going to need to come up and put up some runs on the board against what will be a very tough uh, opponent to get runs across on. So, We'll wait and we'll see how that series winds up working out. Hopefully, we get a five-game slate because that's always more entertaining for everybody unless you're a fan of either of the two teams here. Ultimately, I think and I could see a four-game series here. I think it's going to be the alls to take it. I think they kind of found their footing. They've answered back. It's not like they've really been out of any of these games. Yeah, it was a rough game one, but I, I just think this team overall is a better team. We'll see how this uh, championship series for the Frontier League winds up matching up between the Can-Am side and the uh, Midwest side of things. Obviously, we can't talk about championship preview until we have a championship series, which the earliest we will get that is, I, I suppose, Saturday night. So maybe maybe on Monday we could go through and run through what a, a championship series would look through if we can get all our ducks in a row. But uh, that's about all we got on the Frontier League. For this week, we will go now to the American Association, and that has been one hell of a playoff run. Where we last left off at, we knew we had uh, wildcard matchups. We knew that uh, Cleburne got knocked off by Sioux City. We knew that the Milkmen got knocked off by the Red Hawks, and we knew we were going to have Kansas City probably walking into the final. That pretty much happened. They sweep out the Explorers. 
explorers i want to give them a lot more credit than they probably deserve they had a very very tall task in going against one of the best if not the best uh american association team that we've seen in quite some time oh, but when you lose a game 211 then 611 then 14 to 2 uh you really were never quite in this race uh kansas city is just such a juggernaut of a team that it's it's going to be hard for anybody to beat them off i mean you just you could just go to the league stat leaders for the playoffs. Look at Kansas City's team. You have guys, three guys with two home run games in three games. So Isabel Sweeney and Willis all have two home runs in three games. In the case of Willis, he has eight RBIs in that time as well. You look at the pitching staff for the Monarchs in this series as well. They gave up a grand total of 10 earned runs. So all the runs that the Exes did score were earned, but I mean realistically, outside of Samson, nobody did that badly. I mean, Rhodes and Lindgren and Matthews, they gave up a run apiece, but they each had two or less innings pitched. So, I mean, what are you going to look at? Donatella, in six innings, he gives up two earned runs. That still seems pretty solid to me. Hall gives up one earned run in six innings of work. Uh, There's just so many guys here that are just so dominant that it's hard to look at this team any other way outside of a just a sheer favorite or a lock to make the to to really make this final I don't want to say uncompetitive because we're going to talk about the Red Hawks and what they've managed to do in about two minutes, but they just they seem like such a team to lock down this final where they just toss aside Sioux City like it's nothing. And they're on a seven game winning streak coming into this Man, it's really, really tough to see a team knocking off the Monarchs at this point. However, if there is a team to do it, it probably would be Fargo-Moorhead. Because they've just managed to pull, I don't know how many, how many runs out of thin air. But they managed to just lock this series down and take what could only be described as one of the best series we've seen in quite some time from the Dogs. They started off with a win uh, in Chicago. Then they lost the game two in Chicago, 7-1. to one. Then really where it gets exciting is game three. The Dogs are up 5-4 going into the ninth. The Red Hawks shut them down in the ninth to get to the point of we have a shot at this. So Matt Tomshaw does his job. Seven innings, a two-run ball does his job. Jones surrenders two runs. Neither are earned. Those are not really his fault there. And then you get to Lynn, who does his job, doesn't allow a base runner, shuts it down to the ninth. Good. So we get to the bottom of the ninth. First one is an out. Uh, Zimmerman winds up popping out. Nick Novak comes in for Will Zimmerman. Nick Novak manages to get down to first base. Dylan Kelly winds up advancing the runner off of a throwing error. So now we have two on. Leo Pena comes up, put out for number two. So I believe Ryan is at the corners at this point. And then we get to John Silviano. Ball, Pena advances on that wild pitch. He gets down to second. Novak scores on that wild pitch that is thrown by Kinley. So Kinley's in the game now for Chicago. I hope this is clear. It'd be a lot easier with somebody else here. So that way there could be a break in me talking here. But so Kinley's on the pitch. He throws a wild pitch with runners on the corners. Novak scores from third. Pena goes down to second. Okay, good. Silviano advances on a single, so he gets one into play. Pena scores from second. 
wins the game. So John Silviano already a hero in this series to give the Red Hawks a two games to one lead going into game four. Game four, pretty uneventful in the way of Chicago dominates pretty much the whole way. It's 11 nothing until late. A meaningless run comes across for Fargo-Moorhead. We get a game five on Thursday night. And this may be one of the best games that have been seen in quite some time by most of us in Indy Ball. Chicago opens up early. They get four runs real early into this game. Uh, just not not a great start, if we're being entirely honest, from Ryan Flores. Granted, only one of these runs is his fault. Five come across in the set in the five innings he pitches. Four of them are unearned. So I will grant him that. But just not overall his best body of work. Chicago winds up being up 5-0 after 5, and it's not looking good for the Red Hawks. They managed to chip away a little bit. They get two runs across. So now it's 5-2, and we get to the 7th. And so the Red Hawks now are in a position to strike. They managed to get the bases loaded. They've gotten some action going here. It's looking fairly decent for him, if we're being entirely honest here. Lynn's done his job. He's come in. He's thrown two really solid innings. And then John Silviano comes up again. And this time, he performs a little bit better than two nights earlier in Fargo, where he got him to win in Game 3. This time... He puts one over the wall for a go-ahead grand slam with two outs. That makes it five runs in the inning. That makes it a 7-5 to five Red Hawk lead going into the eighth. Okay, it seems like we're getting pretty exciting here. We bring uh, Jones back on to pitch for his second night at work. That doesn't really go well. He starts off with six straight balls, puts a guy on, puts another guy on, then a hit. It winds up being bases loaded with a run coming in. So the North Dakota native Alex Dubord comes in to pitch with the bases loaded. And he surrenders nothing. I mean, this guy's got to have ice in his veins. He comes in with a bases loaded one out jam. Gets two outs. No runs come across. And he does his job. He gets him out of it. 7-6 the score as we go now to the eighth inning, or we go to the bottom of the eighth. The Red Hawks get him back. Boxwell hits a solo shot, a couple more runs come home. All is well and good, and we are looking pretty solid. So then we get now to the top of the ninth. It is a 10-6 to game. Dubord works himself into a bit of a jam. A walk, a couple of hits, loads the bases, gets a fly out to get one out. Gets another couple of outs to get out of the jam. And that's all she wrote. Red Hawks advance. They survive innings of back-to-back bases loaded jams. And somehow they've managed to advance the championship series, which will begin tonight as we are recording this. Actually, about 45 minutes from now, as I'm speaking, that series will start Fargo versus the Monarchs. And man, oh man. Is that going to be a good series? That is going to be must-watch for everybody. How I would say this winds up working out, I'm still big on the Monarchs. They have done absolutely nothing to tell me that they are not the team that's going to win this. That said, Fargo's a scrappy team. They've proven that to us in both of their last two wins. They were down 
and we thought they were out and they weren't out. I have no idea who's going to wind up pitching for Fargo tonight. They're kind of slim on that. Nissen would be kind of my odds on favorite, him or Versteeke. Granted, Nissen threw 44 pitches uh, not but two days ago, so he's going to be going on short rest, essentially. It's going to be kind of a bullpen night in Fargo, it looks like. And I imagine Tom Shaw will get the hill for Game 2. If not, he will certainly be on the mound for Game 3. Game 2 allows you to use him in Game 5 on short rest. If there is a Game 5, personally, I would hold him back until Game 3 and get a Tom Shaw on full rest in a game that would probably decide your season. I don't see Fargo taking both of these two games in Fargo against Kansas City. I just don't think that's a realistic uh, objective at the moment. I think this is going to be a five-game series if Fargo is going to win it. Ultimately, though, I think you have a murderer's row team in Kansas City. These are two teams that both like to slug the ball. They like offense. They can perform. This is a Fargo team that's been decimated pitching-wise for most of the year, and they've been kind of filling in wherever they can, and guys like Ryan Flores have stepped up into pitching roles from a bullpen role. Tom Shaw comes back after being cut from the White Sox org. You got guys like Versteeg and Neeson and Dubor that come out of seemingly nowhere and really step up and perform admirably to this point this year. It's just you're going up against such a juggernaut team in Kansas City. I just, I have this feeling it's going to be done in four, and that's not to say anything poorly about the way the Red Hawks have played all year. They've battled, they fought hard, they got into a wild card spot, and then they managed to get the second spot in the division. They've proven that they are the best team in the North Division. I don't think anyone can really argue that at this point. But when you're going up against a team with 69 wins, and you're a 700 winning percentage on the year, and just murderer after murderer at the dish, it's really hard to beat that, especially with the pitching staff that's gotten a workout the last couple of days. And they're going to be playing their fourth straight game. The Monarchs have had a couple of days off now. I don't believe they've actually played a game since game three on what would have been Wednesday night. Either be Tuesday or Wednesday they last played. So now they've had, what, two days off, three days off? I believe it would have been Tuesday. It was, yeah, it would be Tuesday. It would be their last game. So Wednesday they didn't play. Thursday they didn't play. Now they finally get to play again on Friday. Sure, they're getting a little bit of bus lag coming in. They had to leave rather late, about 11 o'clock on the East Coast was when they were able to leave to head up to Fargo. And that's going to be in effect too. But they've also had time to rest their whole pitching staff. So everybody should be ready to go. They can set up their rotation the way they want it. Everything's lined up perfect for the Monarchs. I'm not going to rule out a Red Hawks series win, a championship title. This is their first appearance in an American Association title game. They've been playing in the Northern League, but not since heading over to the American Association. Because they are a scrappy team, but it's just hard to bet against the Monarchs in this one. So I'm going to say Monarchs in four. We'll see where we're at and next week. We will certainly be talking about that on this show. Uh, but we've gone for about uh, 40 or so minutes now of me just talking on a solo show. I don't think there's too much else to cover. The Atlantic League is going to start getting heavily featured either next week or the week after. That playoff race is getting interesting. They play into October, about mid-October, so they have about a month left in their season. That wild card hunt's interesting. I'll also be able to go on my rant against half-division or half-season divisional champions because 
that uh, that actually is going to be a fitting rant when High Point winds up missing the postseason despite having the best record in the league, which is just something that shouldn't happen. But hey, that's kind of where we're at at the moment. So we'll talk about the Atlantic League next week. I'm just kind of uh, I'm kind of dead at the moment. So we're going to wrap this up and then we're going to get out of here. And again, I apologize for having a solo episode this week, but it's just kind of the way things worked out. So. We'll get to the plugs and we'll get out of here. Uh, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, be sure to do so at IndieBallPod, on Instagram at IndieBallReport. You can find all our episodes, all our show notes, and everything like that on the website IndieBallReport.com. You can also uh, follow the show just about wherever you find podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Podomatic, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many other locations as well. Be sure to rate and review and subscribe if you're able to on your preferred podcast platform that being said i don't have anything to add because you just heard me talk for about uh, three quarters of an hour so uh, i'll leave you off with our usual exit Uh, until next time don't forget to play ball